don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. We have a lot of really great episodes we're working on editing for you right now. And uh, if you want to support us and what we're doing, there's a lot of great ways you can do it. First of all, listen, be thoughtful. That's what uh, we make these for. And we hope you um, enjoy our topics. Two, share our episodes with people who you might think uh, would like to hear about some of these topics, death and all the things we don't talk about enough. Uh, we don't do a lot of advertising, so the only way people find us is through recommendations from friends and family. So if you're enjoying these episodes, share it with someone you like. Uh, you can also review us. That does help a lot of people find the We Croak podcast. So make that review. Say something nice. We really do appreciate that. And finally, uh, another way you can support us is our Patreon page. You'll see a link in the show notes. Uh, we just created a, a new... Um, tier there, new prize. Uh, there's a deck of 50 death cards. It's kind of like a tarot deck, but every card is death, but also unique because it's a poem a, mo a monk wrote at, uh, while they lay dying. It's a death poem on every unique card. And that's a really special gift benefit that we uh, worked with this company called Mindless Toys on, which we really love. So check out our Patreon if you haven't already. I love all our episodes of the We Crook podcast, uh, but if I've ever wanted you to share one before, I might pick this one coming up. And the reason for that is when we forget our history, we lose our context for the future as well as the present. Um, I have as our guest today, a Dr. Rene Nahera, um, and he is a doctor who was on the front lines during, you know, this last pandemic year. And he's also leads an organization called the history of vaccines. And, you know, I learned so much in our conversation about humanity's relationship with regular and um, unrelenting mass death and disfigurement and how much pandemics are a part of our history and how the early history of vaccines and its precursors changed the world and even a small um, leg up in uh, who got, you know, some immunity and inoculation um, technology first picked winners of the modern era. And this isn't history that's well known. I consider myself, I mean, I went to college, I minored in history, and I didn't know most of this. And obviously, I think we have some catching up to do. And, um, you know, really understanding the history of humankind's relationship with pandemics and the healthcare we use to fight them and how important it is. So uh, I really hope you ensure to, uh, that you enjoy today's episode. And uh, here we go. Dr. Rene Nahera, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, to start us off, uh, I'd love you to introduce yourself. And I know that you do a lot of things with medicine. We're going to be talking about the history of vaccines part, but I know you do a lot more. So for our listeners, if you could just share um, who you are. Yeah, so I'm a doctor of public health. I uh, teach biostatistics at George Mason University. I teach epidemiology at Johns Hopkins University. I'm also one of the senior epidemiologists at the Fairfax County Health Department, which is one of the larger um, health departments outside of DC, Washington, DC. 
And, um, you know, I also am the editor of the project of the History of Vaccines Project by the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, which is the, the college is the, the oldest uh, medical association or medical, you know, uh, group in the nation. It was, it was founded by some of the founders, some of the people who actually uh, signed the Constitution. So it's been around for a while. And, and um, here we have this project trying to uh, bring it to the 21st century. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't know the piece of constitutional history. And because you're in public health, I have to ask, what has your life been like since March 2020? Uh, fairly easy. Lots of days in the hammock, uh, hanging out. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, it's it's been brutal, uh, to be honest. It's been it's been really really hard, um, not just on me, but on my on my family, um, on my coworkers, my colleagues. Um, it all started a little bit over a year ago. We knew about what was happening in China um, at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, just from colleagues who were telling us that uh, something was something was up. Um, they, they had a, a, a cluster of pneumonia cases and they didn't know what was causing it. And we kind of started getting a little bit worried when we started seeing those those that cluster not not receding. And so, um, you know, the, the pandemic is declared and they activate the emergency uh, response at the county where I work. And I became the the branch manager or the branch chief of the outbreak branch based on my my experience with infectious diseases. And, um, you know, I've been managing a team, a wonderful team of uh, epidemiologists, public health nurses, uh, environmental health specialists, data analysts, everybody trying to work on um, mitigating the effects of the pandemic at the local level in congregate settings. So in like nursing homes, schools, um, office buildings, people, were, people uh, who are clustered together. Um, we've been working on that. Um, some tough days at the beginning, right? Uh, 16, 18 hour days, um, you know, no time off at all during the week. And then managing a toddler who had to go to daycare. My wife is a physician assistant in an emergency department. And she also is a, con a consultant for a local health department for another, yet another health department. So um, we were very busy, had to manage that. Um, and then it kind of got a little bit easier over the summer, not only because we got into the routine of how to do things, but also because cases kind of went down for a little bit, but then everything came roaring back for the winter. And that, again, um, 18 hour days uh, or more, uh, very little sleep, uh, lots to do even on the weekends, mm, lots of uh, personal losses. I lost a colleague to COVID-19. I lost a dear, dear cousin um, to COVID-19. Lots of people got sick. My mother got sick. Um, she lives far away. So, you know, I had to keep an eye on that, making sure that she was okay. And then my father, who is back in, in Mexico in our hometown, he um, he did not get sick uh, from COVID-19, but he does have other health issues. And so I had to tend to that. A lot of things, a lot of moving parts, uh, definitely uh, uh, an exercise in how to balance your professional life and your personal life. Um, thankfully, you know, we're at this, this uh, time now where cases have... Uh, decreased uh, pretty significantly. Uh, a lot of people are getting vaccinated and um, that which is a, always a good thing. Um, that seems to have driven the cases down. And so this this will be my last week as a, the chief of the outbreak branch. Then I'm moving back to my original work in population epidemiology. Now, throughout the whole pandemic, I also you know had to keep up with history of vaccines with the project and keep people informed uh, on what was going on and putting everything in historical context. A lot of things that are that are happening with this pandemic they're not new. They have been seen before uh, from how the, the virus got out of China and went on to the rest of the world to how we completely messed up the, the response uh, at, at the federal and state levels uh, and maybe even at the local level. <laughs> and um, 
you know, a lot of mistakes were repeated from the past. And so I, I wrote about that on the, on the project. And then also the teaching. Um, we went online, fully online. And so I did a lot of my courses um, online with uh, a lot of very anxious students, a lot of students who were um, worried about their futures, uh, but also a, a, a little bit excited too, because they're public health students. And so they saw this as a great opportunity to um, get their foot in the door uh, with respects to their, their future career prospects. And, um, you know, they, they, they did well uh, for the circumstances. And uh, here we are, you know, on the other side of this, hopefully, um, at least for the United States and for this region of the world where I am, I know it's continuing in the rest of the world. And um, you never know, we might have to stand up the, the emergency uh, operations again, and I might be pulled back into it. But for now, I am, I am planning on uh, finally getting to go see my father down in Mexico, getting to go see my mother out in the Midwest. Um, and, uh, you know, enjoying the times with the, the now preschooler she's not a toddler anymore uh so yeah it's it's been it's been um i wouldn't say it's been fun but it has it certainly has been uh, a growth uh, opportunity for me professionally personally um and in my relationship with my wife yeah so uh obviously this newfound freedom of all of us having plans again of like visiting mexico going on vacation all these things um is because of vaccines so i'm hoping we can spend um you know the next uh you know, time on this podcast, really geeking out over the history and uh, the science of vaccines, which I'm really looking forward to. And um, I just want to acknowledge really quickly that uh, thank you for your service and helping us all get through this year. I had a hard year too, but it wasn't 18 hour days on the front lines hard. Uh, so thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's, <laughs> it's my job. It's no, and, and, I, and I mean it. I mean it. I, I've learned that's another thing that I learned. I learned to say thank you. Uh, you know, a lot of people in my in my profession and, and in the medical profession, the provider profession, they they don't they don't teach you how to say thank you when somebody um, thanks you for your work. Uh, it's work that needs to be thanked, and I, I I say that to my colleagues as well all the time. Hey, thank you. You know, like I mean it. We we're getting through a pandemic because you're doing so much, um, and and I think it's something that we need to learn um, to do. So to start us out, can you just tell us how the project of the history of vaccines.org came about? Why did you decide that the world needed this website with, you know, history going back to, you know, the 1500s, the 1600s of all these pandemics and ways people tried to respond to it? Um, how, did, how did this project come about? Yeah, so the College of Physicians, like I said, is one of the oldest, um, one of the oldest medical uh, groups or medical associations. And... Um, they have a lot of history there at the, at the building in Philadelphia. They, they have the, the historical medical library, which has books dating back to several, several centuries uh, ago um, on things, all things medical. They also have a, a phenomenal group of fellows, medical fellows, who are from every walk of life in the medical fields. Um, they have a, a wealth of information, uh, you know, in, in human terms. And they also have the Mutter Museum, the, the or the Mutter Museum. They, the, there's an umlaut over the U. Um, it has um, medical and scientific curiosities in there. So you'll go in there and you'll see some skeletons of people who had uh, bone diseases. You'll see some um, samples of uh, historical uh, context to diseases and conditions that used to affect people and maybe still do today, but just a, a lot of very interesting things that if you're a, a science geek or a medicine geek, you would find very, very interesting uh, located right there in downtown Philadelphia. And so part of that um, historicity to all of it was, you know, we're, here we are in the 21st century. 
Um, we have this very, very successful intervention in, for many diseases called a vaccine. And um, not a lot of people understand it. And uh, in fact, uh, the people who peddle misinformation about vaccines are kind of the ones with the most, um, you know, the, the, the loudest and the ones with the most followers and the ones with the most popularity. And so there was this impetus to kind of um, put together something that would be reached by audiences worldwide and that would explain the history of vaccines that would counter the misinformation with um, good, well-sourced information from experts and from official sources, and, um, and that it would be done in a way that was not per se promoting vaccination, although that seems to be what ends up happening, right? You say something is good, you're kind of promoting it. But we wanted people to make up their own minds uh, on vaccination with good information, not with bad information. And at the same time, kind of document the day-to-day -day things that happen in the world with respect to diseases, infectious diseases, um, and put them in historical context. And that's where the blog comes in. So a lot of the material are articles and games that students can play. And there's some teaching contact, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And there's some teaching materials in there for teachers who can uh, use it for their schools. But we also wanted to just do a day-to-day -day kind of um, put today's news in historical context in the blog. And so I got involved. I wasn't the original editor. The original editor was Carrie Youngdahl, who is now with Gavi, the uh, Vaccine Alliance, uh, doing some some very very good work on HIV uh, vaccine research. And she she put together this site, this website. And it was just a website, you know, just you know, not not nothing too impressive. If you go look at it right now, we're redesigning it, so some some parts are currently unavailable and under construction. But you can tell it's a little bit dated, right? It's a little bit from the, the era of um, my MySpace uh, and not so much Facebook. But anyway, um, that was the impetus behind it. And I, I at the time when, when they started the project back in, in uh, 2007, 2008, I was a student. Um, I, I, no, I just graduated from medical, not medical, I'm sorry. <clears throat> back when they started the project in 2007, 2008, I had just graduated with my master's in public health. And I was working as a, as a lowly epidemiologist at a state health department, and I wrote a blog post for my own blog on uh, Benjamin Franklin and uh, the inoculation against smallpox. This was before vaccination, and we can talk a little bit about that later. But um, Benjamin Franklin wrote a, a, an opening uh, kind of a pamphlet for a larger pamphlet or a larger book saying, look, we need to use inoculation to fight smallpox. Uh, Benjamin Franklin had lost uh, uh, family members to smallpox and he wanted to do something about it. And he showed um, some numbers on people who were inoculated versus people who caught smallpox the natural way and how inoculation was safer. And what I ended up doing, I did the biostatistics on it. And I said, yes, the results are statistically significant. There is a statistically significant difference between the two groups. Um, Benjamin Franklin, you know, was onto something. And Carrie saw the blog post and she said, hey, can I can I share this on History of Vaccines? And I said, absolutely. And that began a, a professional relationship that uh, blossomed into a friendship. And um, by the time that she left as the editor, um, she she put me up uh, as a candidate for the editor and I was I was chosen. And I've been uh, running the blog uh, and well, the site overall since uh, 2018. Yeah. So let's talk about smallpox a little bit because it's really important to the early history of vaccines because I know it's you know gone now but it was a scourge um, when I was looking at the history of vaccines kind of timeline like people don't realize but there were smallpox pandemics 
every you know 10 20 years throughout colonial history yeah uh, and the first vaccines or i think variolation which is um mm-hmm. uh intentionally like infecting yourself from someone who's infected and they're like pus marks or something and maybe you can tell me more about that was sort of an early precursor to uh the idea of vaccines yeah so you know um at some point in in the maybe late thousands (laughs) um smallpox makes the jump from animals to humans uh somewhere along the silk road uh between china and the middle east um somebody came in came into contact with it and off off we were to the races with this scourge like you call it it would travel the world uh, in waves and it would travel with travelers um, mostly traders it would jump on ships and and go around the world and um, if you were to catch smallpox you had a a 30 to 50 percent chance of dying and if you survived you would be disfigured because the pox the the blisters that form all over your face and all over your body and sometimes inside your mouth sometimes inside your your eye and your eyelids you would be deformed uh, or sometimes left blind, deaf, uh, or, you know, you, you had all sorts of complications. And so much so that a, a lot of a lot of women um, have been reported as committing suicide because of the deformities that they, they suffered. And like you said, it would go around the world every, every generation or so because you would have a lot of people who would contract it once and never catch it again. And you would then have a, a series of, of people being born who never caught it and they were not immune. And then they would catch it. And so it would go around and around. And it was it was very serious. Um, you know, you, when you think about it, if you're a small community trying to to prop up your your um, your town and all of a sudden something comes around and wipes out half of your population and the other half is left disfigured. Um, not a good thing. Right. And so uh, out of China, they start noticing that if you somehow come into contact with uh, a lesser less virulent form of the disease you would be you would catch it but you wouldn't be as sick uh, if you came into contact with it artificially and what i mean by that is that they would take some of the pustules and dry them out and the scabs and dry them out in the sun and then grind them up and then breathe them in and they would get a little bit sick uh, but not not the full-on smallpox and then they would be immune now, how did they how did they figure that out? It is left uh, somewhere in the dark recesses of history, but they did. They figured that out, and just like smallpox along the Silk Road, this knowledge started disseminating to the rest of the world, and it made it to northern Africa by the late 1600s. And so, at the time, the slave trade had had started, um, you know, between Africa, the the continent, and North America, the continent, and uh, the the early American colonies. And enslaved people would be taken and given the, the, the inoculation, the variolation, and it's called variolation because of the virus was called variola. Uh, variola major was very bad, or you know, you, you would die from it um, almost certainly. Variola minor, um, 30 to 50% mortality rate. And, and you, you know, you, it, was, it was preferable, I guess, to the other one. And so um, enslaved people were given the variola minor in their arms, so they would take the, the, the pus from somebody who had it, uh, put it on a lancet, and then lance your arm with it. And they would develop fevers, uh, a few blisters around the, the site where it was given. Um, now, this is given, you know, through the skin instead of inhaled, like the natural form. And so it would cause this reaction. But if you survived it, and it had it had about an 8% mortality rate compared to 30 to 50, 
and uh, you survived it, then you were good. You were immune for the rest of your life. And so a lot of enslaved people were chosen based on having that procedure done because then they would not get sick when the next uh, pandemic rolled around and they would be able to function as servants. Um, and one of those people um, was Onesimus. Uh, and we don't know his, his real name, but he was given the name Onesimus when he was brought to the, with the Massachusetts colony in the late 1600s. And um, he was sold to a congregation who then gifted, if, if you can do such a thing to a human, um, to Cotton Mather, uh, a reverend in Massachusetts. And Cotton Mather asked Onesimus, you know, what, what's up with that, that mark on your arm? Um, and Onesimus told him the story of how he was, he was given this inoculation and how he would be immune to smallpox. Cotton Mather thought that this was very interesting. And he, he told a, a physician in town, Dr. Boylston, about it. Dr. Boylston then sends letters to his colleagues in Europe, and his colleagues in Europe reply with, yeah, we've heard about this. We, we know that the barbarians uh, in Northern Africa do it. Uh, and by this, you know, the Barbary Coast, uh, the, that, the, the pirates that, that uh, occupied uh, Northern Africa. We know that people in the Middle East and Turkey, what was then the Ottoman Empire, do it. Uh, we know that people in the Far East uh, do it uh, in places like China. And so there's something to it, uh, but however, you know, what do they know? They're barbarians. What does Onesimus know? He's, he's a slave, uh, you know, and so they, they didn't pick up on this for a while. Um, but Cotton Mather and Dr. Bolson decide to try it out anyways. Uh, in, in 1724, there is a ship that lands at Boston Harbor and um, a sailor comes off and has smallpox. And when they realize that they're on... On the, on the cusp of yet another epidemic locally, which was, which was part of the time of a global pandemic of smallpox, they decide to variolate themselves and their families and all of their, the, their servants. And so the, the epidemic comes to pass and they do the comparison of the numbers and lo and behold, if you were variolated, you had less uh, of a chance of dying than if you caught it by the natural way. And so that was definitive evidence to begin variolation um, uh, on a wider scope. Um, Benjamin Franklin gets the idea from that, that episode because uh, it was very well documented. But also uh, across the, the Atlantic in, in Europe, um, people are traveling to the Middle East. There, there's more commerce happening. And so they're picking up on this idea and writing back home about it, especially the, the scientifically inclined people. There's a a woman who is uh, uh, named Lady Mary Montague. She's uh, the wife of an ambassador to Great to uh, to the Ottoman Empire from Great Britain, and she hears about this. She has her own child um, inoculated, and uh, he survives. And she she speaks highly of the the procedure and how you know they're now immune. Uh, she had also lost family to to smallpox, and um, and she herself had had caught it. And so um, you know she talks highly about this. It starts spreading. The idea starts spreading. Little by little, other uh, historical figures pick up on the idea. Catherine the Great from Russia, she, she inoculates herself in front of her court uh, to show her people that, you know, it's, it's safe. And she wants everybody in the Russian Empire at the time to get inoculated as well. Uh, Great Britain starts using it, and, um, you know, just like any other vaccine, right? It's a little uh, inequitable. Uh, the upper echelons of society start doing it because they have access to the physicians who know how to do this because you need to know how to do this, because if you do it wrong, you can actually trigger a, an epidemic of smallpox. And so the idea keeps catching on more and more. Um, then the, the American Revolutionary War comes around. George Washington has a, a big loss up near Canada, 
And it's partly because some of his men fall ill with smallpox. And so he decides that the entire Continental Army needs to get inoculated against smallpox. Um, and so he hires physicians and some of the soldiers don't want to have it. But he forcefully, and I mean forcefully, like held them down um, to, to get the, the inoculation. The British come over and a lot of the British soldiers are sick with smallpox. And, uh, you know, with the high mortality rate, don't make it. And George Washington troops are ready and they're immune and they, they, they win the Revolutionary War. So the idea, you know, it takes on even more, more and more speed as the 1700s move along until we get to the late 1700s to 17, the 1790s, when Edward Jenner, a British physician who was very observative, he's usually found out outdoors uh, making drawings of birds and, and plants because uh, he, he likes that kind of thing. But he's also a physician. He notices something very interesting, and we can get into the story then of the first vaccine. I just want to acknowledge that that's one of the best stories I've ever heard in my entire life, that there was this slave from the Barbary Coast schooling Harvard doctors on variolation, or sort of an early precursor to vaccines, that ends up this knowledge giving the American revolutionaries a strategic edge in the Revolutionary War uh, that they ended up winning. That's that's an amazing story. Yeah, it is. And it's it's often lost to, to history. Um, in, in 2005, uh, Boston Magazine declared Onesim as one of the top 100 Boston Bostonians of all time. Um, and his story really came to light. Uh, but a lot of a lot of professors who, who um, you know, had done the research on the, the slave trade knew about him and knew that he had done this. Um, but again, you know, history it is what it is, right? And so we, we didn't hear much about him. Um, and, and now we do. Um, he, he Eventually, he bought his freedom from Cotton Mather and married a woman and had children. But not much is known after that. There's a, if you Google him right now, there's a picture of an African-American man wearing a suit. And it's an old picture. It's a black and white old picture. And it's named, uh, it, it has on it Onesimus. And a lot of people think that that's him, and it, it is not. Uh, photography didn't come around until the 1800s, well after he was dead. Um, but it is somebody somebody named Onesimus who happens to be African-American, and that's the picture that they use. Uh, we don't know much about him, and people have tried to find his grave or what happened to him, who are his descendants, and there's not a lot there. But yeah, he, I mean, talk about impact, right? Like you he said. Changed he changed the course he, of history. He did. He did, he, he did it by not being afraid of of speaking his mind of what he knew to be true. Um, and in his writings, Cotton Mather calls him quite a, uh, a mischievous fellow um, <laughs> who, who you know, doesn't like to follow the rules, uh, gets in trouble a lot, talks back to him. And, but here we are, right? Yeah. Um, thank you. <laughs> wow. Uh, what an amazing man. So uh, you mentioned that you know, George Washington had to force uh, these uh, Americans in the Continental Army sometimes to hold them down and inoculate them. So there was uh, resistance to, you know, vaccines even before vaccines existed. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about what that resistance was about and, um, you know, how they made people do it? Yeah, so it was partially, um, you know, this is a time when you don't know what causes disease. There's a lot of theories, but nothing concrete. Uh, you don't know what a virus is. You don't know what bacteria are. Uh, that wouldn't happen until the mid-1800s. And so um, people have all sorts of theories. And when you hear that the that a, a, an enslaved person from, from Africa 
wants you to do something and you think yourself you think yourself superior to them, you're probably not going to do it. Um, or when you hear that somebody's going to give you the smallpox in your arm, you're probably not going to do it. Uh, or when you see somebody take material from somebody else from their arm from their poxes and uh, put it in your arm, you're probably not going to do it. So that's that's what led to that resistance. Now it wasn't it wasn't universal resistance, but it was it was pretty high. Uh, a lot of pamphlets and a lot of uh, political commentary was made against it. Um, you had the the first inklings of anti-vaccine organizations, so people getting together, banding together to to uh, keep um, people from getting inoculated, and so on and so forth. So you know, it, it comes out of not knowing what is what is going on, um, because physicians couldn't explain to you the the mechanism by which it worked. They just knew that it worked. They had seen the evidence of that it worked. Um, and so they, they went with it, but yeah, that's, that's probably one of the beginnings of, of what would later become an, uh, the, <laughs> the aptly named, uh, anti-vaccination league that would begin to grow out of, out of England into the rest of the world, um, in the mid, mid 1800s. So yeah, that, that, that was where it was coming from. It was coming out of a, a sense of superiority, ignorance, and, and just, um, you know, the, that ickiness that we naturally feel when we. We see other people's uh, body fluids, right? Right, uh, we, right. We don't want to touch them and, and literally stay away from them. dried pus from a sick person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's an ick yeah. factor. Yeah, for sure. Uh, especially with these earlier vaccines. Um, so I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, the first true vaccine was also for smallpox, uh, made from the uh, pus from a cow that had cowpox. Yeah. Can you tell that story? Yeah, so in public health, the story that we're, we're told as students is that Dr. Edward Jenner, this uh, a very observant British physician, was um, on a walkabout in England, and he came up on these milkmaids, these women who milked cows for a living, and they were beautiful. They were, you know, not scarred at all, but they were of an age that they should have at least caught smallpox, um, you know, at least one of them, and they hadn't, and he inquired further and found out that um, they, they had never had smallpox. And so the, the true story is, is somewhere in there that he, he noticed that certain populations were not getting smallpox, even though uh, several epidemics had gone by. And so he, he, he made some observations. And the first observation was that they, these were people who had worked with, with cows. And it wasn't just the milkmaids. There were a series of people that he interviewed. They had worked with cows. Number two, the cows had cowpox, which is uh, a, a disease similar to smallpox in that cows, only cows get it or um, um, large mammals at the time, like cows, horses, etc. And, and also, uh, these people caught the cowpox um, on their hands, but they didn't develop full-on signs and symptoms of a disease. They just had some blistering on their hands, no fever, nothing else, and, and it went away, and they would never catch it again. And so he theorized that there's something about cowpox that triggers immunity in us, um, you know, in, in humans that also protects against smallpox. And at the time, again, he doesn't know what a virus is. He doesn't know what bacteria are. He doesn't know what a white blood cell is. You know, the, the microscope hasn't been invented yet. Um, and so he kind of just theorizes this and decides to take on an experiment. So what Dr. Jenner does is that he goes to his gardener and says, hey, you, you, have, a, you have a child. And the gardener says, yes, I know of him. And the, uh, the, and Dr. Jenner says, well, if I give you some money, can I perform a medical experiment on James? James Phipps is the name of the little boy. Uh, he needed somebody who was young so that if he got sick, he could, well, theoretically survive. Uh, and then also who, somebody who had been born since the last epidemic, who 
would have not had any exposure to smallpox whatsoever. And so the father said, yeah, sure, you know, just give me some cash and you can have James. So Edward Jenner uh, takes James Phipps to his laboratory and he takes uh, smallpox, I'm sorry, he takes cowpox from a, a milkmaid and gives it to James and James gets a reaction in his, in his hand. Um, he develops a few blisters. Again, no fever, no real bad uh, signs and symptoms of anything. A couple of weeks later, when the, the, the mark on his hand heals and it, it begins to show signs of not being infectious anymore, he then takes smallpox from another woman who at the time had smallpox and he gives it to, to James. And he waits and he waits and he waits and nothing happens to James. He tries it again because, you know, maybe I didn't do it right. And he waits some more and nothing happens to, happens to James. No fever, no marks. Even the, the marks of the, the inoculation nothing happens there. Like there's no blistering, like with other inoculations, nothing happens at all. James goes back to his home, doesn't give the smallpox to any of his family members. He is fully immune and he is not even catching it. And so he, uh, Jane, uh, um, Edward Jenner writes this up in a series of uh, case investigations of different people who had similar experiences of getting cowpox and then not being, being completely immune to, to smallpox. And uh, he doesn't, in his first writings, he doesn't mention uh, James by name and he doesn't say what he did because this would have been, this would have put him in, in trouble, right? He kills James. He, he's, he's done. Uh, but he, luckily he didn't kill James. And so he writes this up and sends it to his colleagues in the rest of Europe. And they all reply with, oh, wow, like this is, this is serious stuff, man. Like, are you sure? And they start doing their own experiments um, in France and in um, Northern England and then um, in Spain. And so he, he basically said, this is something that is fantastic because it doesn't cause disease uh, because it's, it's widely available. Almost all cows have some form of this and we can, we can get it. And uh, it's easy to do, you know, it's just like inoculation, but uh, you know, with this, with this, this new thing that I'm going to call vaccination uh, after the word vaca uh, in Latin means cow. So it's, you're, you're getting vaccinated. Um, the document that he writes gets translated to Spanish and given to Charles V of Spain in 1803. Um, Dr. Javier Balmes, uh, who is the king's royal surgeon, tells the, the king who had uh, several of his family members die from smallpox. He says, look, this seems to work. Um, everybody agrees. Uh, I've, I've run it through our version of peer review and they all agree that it works. Some more experiments were done. Uh, and and it, it, it works. And the king said, okay, you know what, Javier? You're going to get in a ship and you're going to bring this to the, the all my, my territories overseas. So all of what is now Latin America and the Philippines are going to get this wonderful new vaccination. And in 1803, Javier got about 30 orphans from uh, an orphanage and gave the first one the cowpox because at the time they had no, no refrigeration. Um, they didn't have any tissue cultures. They had no way of actually transferring this. So he gave the first orphan the, the cowpox. When the orphan developed the blister, it was then taken and given to the next orphan and so on and so forth, carried to the Canary Islands, which are uh, Spanish overseas territory. They get to Cuba. And then from Cuba, they split into two. One group will go south all the way into Chile, modern day Chile. And another group will go west towards Mexico and then go through Mexico, deliver the vaccine to as many people as possible um, uh, using the Catholic Church. Uh, you know, they have the diocese. And so they use them as, as uh, gathering points for people to get the vaccine and then get a, a bunch of new orphans and get on the ship and go to the Philippines 
deliver the vaccine there and, and go all the way around uh, South Asia, South Africa, and then come back up to, to Spain. And so he circumnavigated the globe in about three to four years delivering the, these vaccines. Um, with him was a, a woman who was the caretaker of the orphans from Spain, uh, and, my, and her name blank, you know, it's a, it draws a blank at this time, but she is the first public health nurse. Uh, she's, she's the caretaker, but she also behaves as a nurse or treats the kids like a nurse. And um, they travel the world, and this is the first uh, humanitarian mission um, to deliver, deliver vaccination um, to the whole world. And on his way out of the Philippines, he gets uh, Javier Baumis gets a letter from the the British, and they're saying, "Hey, do you mind landing in Hong Kong and, and giving us some of that sweet sweet cowpox so that we can we can give it to our people there?" And he gets a letter from the Portuguese, and the Portuguese hey are saying, "Hey, can you stop in Macau, which is a, a territory at the time that is in, in, in China as well?" Um, and same thing, you know, even though these these countries, these three superpowers, England, Spain, and Portugal, are trying to conquer the rest of the world, and they're at war with each other often, they uh, come together over this and say, hey, let's let's move this along. Let's get people vaccinated. Um, and so Javier Balmes returns to Spain, a hero. Uh, by all accounts, he, he uh, inoculated or vaccinated now uh, hundreds of thousands of people in Latin America uh, by, by 1803, 1805. And then, curiously enough, had, like just like we talked about George Washington, right? Curiously enough, in 1810, and by then there had been a, a few epidemics of smallpox that did not affect the the people of Latin America like they did before. And in 1810, uh, Mexico declares independence, and they have a young, vibrant, healthy uh, population of young men to to begin their their revolutionary war. And soon thereafter, uh, modern-day Bolivia, modern-day Colombia, modern-day uh, Chile, all of those other countries also begin their revolutionary fight against Spain. Because guess what? Uh, 30 to 50% of the population did not die from the last uh, smallpox epidemic. Now, you know, this is, this is now me looking at history, but it, there's good evidence there that, you know, they didn't get wiped out and they were able to come together to declare their independence from Spain. And sure, there were other factors that came into play. Uh, at, a, at a global level, but um, you know, as much as Charles V wanted everybody healthy, he kind of he kind of got what he was asking for, and then some, right? Hello, everyone. We thought we'd take a quick little break from our conversation and talk about WeCroak's brand new flagship feature of the year, WeCroak Daily Review. Hansa, you've had a chance to use it for a while. How have you been have been liking it? Yeah, we uh, we finally built something new, available now on iOS, and it is basically one moment per day to look over and see if you really did the things you care about most in this life. We ask you for some guiding statements that you get to define what are the things that you care about most to have done in a day. Mine has lists things like meditate, spend quality time with family, reach out to friends, you know, move my body well, ate delicious food. And, uh, you know, it comes up in the evening. And I just, if I did it that day, I toggle it, yes. Uh, the little bright spot that tracks it gets bigger. And if I didn't, I just think, uh, okay, better tomorrow. And this is, you know, about taking that, that energy of looking at mortality to that next step uh, of a program of living closer to whatever it is you care about most. I think it's just a marvelous way to, um, put a little bit more of, of yourself into the WeCroak app. And that's 
you know, probably the biggest theme of on all the things that we've added um, ever since the, the very beginning. And this is certainly the most, you know, personalized feature that um, we've ever done. So we hope you, you'll give it a try on, on Leap for uh, iOS and uh, let us know um, what you think about it. Yeah, and, and kudos to you, Ian, uh, because I think that, you know, you really designed it so beautifully. So it's just as simple and easy to use and sort of seamless as the core sort of death medication app. So if you have an iPhone and you want to start doing a daily review, you can definitely give it a try. Uh, first month is free and all that. So hop on there, sign up for Leap. And uh, thank you. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our, our podcast as well. Let's uh, Let's get right back to it. want to get a sense of how the world changed through all this because smallpox somewhere in the thousands makes the jump to people it becomes um i didn't actually realize until this conversation just how much of uh an overwhelming effect on every society 30 to 50 percent every generation wiped out everyone else disfigured to some degree and that's just yeah and that's just smallpox you yeah. know you have other diseases and conditions coming along that, you know, if you survive smallpox, you were probably left pretty weak and something else could come along behind it and, and take you out. So uh, big chunks of populations were being taken out every generation. So with the advent of variolation, the upper classes who had, had access to these fancy physicians got some protection. But most people, it was still the same story of 30 to 50 percent and and all of that. Um, but then with this vaccination um, that could be spread more widely, kind of have this public health effect of really, you know, vaccinating uh, a mass of the population. Um, how does the world start to change? You start seeing um, booms in, in population. You start seeing more uh, growth. Um, not only that, but the science. So you start getting people to be very curious about what is going on. You know, so you have uh, Edwin Van Leeuwenhoek. Uh, developing the, the microscope to be able to see blood cells and differentiate between the red and the white blood cells. And there's something there, right? There's some immunity going on there. You have Louis Pasteur in France in the mid-1800s um, developing the, the theory that uh, diseases are not, infectious diseases at, at least, are not coming out of nowhere. They're, there's these microbes that are causing disease, and he, he proves it, and we have the, the, the birth of germ, germ theory. Uh, John Snow in the 1850s, there was a rather large cholera epidemic in London that was killing a lot of people and um, building on this idea that it cannot be possibly coming out of bad air because that's that's what everybody thought it was, uh, just bad air. Um, he, he says, no, it's in the water and I can't see it and I can't prove it to you, but it's just from observation that I learned how to be observant like Edward Jenner, like uh, others, and, and he, he saved London from the cholera epidemics. Uh, water sanitation became a thing after that and so on and so forth. Like there was this, just this acceleration that came at a time when the world was getting industrialized as well. So technology, science and technology were, were starting to take this massive leap forward in the 1800s because the, the, there was a triggering of the, the wanting to know what was going on with vaccination and there were more people. And so more people, healthier people who were free to think and come up with ideas and exchange those ideas. And, and France, uh, France um, I'm sorry, Spain, England, and Portugal were not at each other's throats 
they had internal revolutions and they had internal things like France had its revolution as well. But at least, you know, these these international conflicts were kind of settling down for a, a, a little bit. You know, they were not as bad as before. Um, and then the globalization, too. Right. Because of Bal- Balmis wasn't the first one to go around the planet, but he certainly began this idea of, you know, we can deliver information in the form of the, the pamphlets uh, and the book written by by uh, Edward Jenner translated into Spanish through a network of dioceses and others. We can deliver um, the vaccine. We know how to do that now. Um, we can improve upon it and so on and so forth. It's just this, this explosion that while it cannot be tied in solely to vaccines, but certainly, you know, much easier when you don't have 30 to 50 percent of the population uh, dying if, if they catch smallpox. Wow. I mean, it's, it seems like it made modernity possible and all the things we take for granted um, just in terms of population and stuff like that. What were some other early consequential vaccines? So there's not a lot of advance on, on vaccines uh, until Louis Pasteur begins his work in France because, again, you know, you don't know what a bacteria or a virus is and you don't know how to grow it in the lab. And so the first theory, so there was, there's certain stages in the history of vaccines. The first stage is inoculation, where you give an attenuated form of the actual disease to somebody and hope for the best. Um, and you, you do it carefully so that they, they get a mild form of the disease and they become immune. The next leap is vaccination with Edward Jenner, where you find um, an analog to the disease, but in another animal, and you give that to the human, uh, hoping that it doesn't cause disease in the human and gives immunity to the, the human form of that disease. And they tried that for a, a lot of diseases, you know, almost everything that they, they, they heard of. They tried it and it wouldn't work because they, they just didn't quite understand immunity uh, very well. They didn't quite understand uh, what, what was necessary to trigger an immune response. And they didn't understand that, you know, you can't do that with bacteria. Um, you can't do it with other forms of viruses. And for some things, you just can't do it the way you, the way that it was done for smallpox or for cowpox. Uh, but then Louis Pasteur comes along and he performs an interesting experiment. So he notices that, um, you know, uh, somebody who was bitten by a rabid dog will develop rabies in about two to three weeks um, and then die. It's, it's 100% fatal. But he realizes that um, some animals are a little bit more resistant to the to the rabies than others, um, and he doesn't quite understand why. But there's some attenuation of the rabies rabies virus happening, and he wants to know why. So he takes a, a whole bunch of rabbits and he gives the rabbit uh, the first rabbit the rabies, and the and then uh, after a few days the rabbit becomes very ill, and he kills the rabbit, takes out the spinal cord looks at it under the microscope, now, now he has microscopes, and sees that the, 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 the central nervous system of this rabbit has been ravaged by something, which he calls the rabies virus. And he then takes some of, that, some of that brain material and gives it to the next rabbit, and the next rabbit also becomes sick, and so on and so forth. But by the time he gets to the 30th rabbit, the rabbit doesn't die. The rabbit actually survives, and he wonders what is going on. He takes out that brain, and it's not as ravaged. And so he performs the experiment again and challenges the last rabbit with a full-blown dose uh, right off of a dog uh, of rabies, and he, the, the rabbit survives. 
And so he's like, oh my God, you know, I've, I'm, I've serially diluted the virus to a certain point where the, the, the last rabbit is not only not getting it because there's not enough virus there in the spinal cord, but he becomes immune because there was enough to trigger the immune response. And that was the next, that's the next leap is the, the figuring out how to trigger an immune response with just a little bit of virus. But not only that, the virus has been attenuated through uh, passing it numerous times through uh, generations of an animal. Now we do it with cell cultures to attenuate, for example, the flu virus. We pass it through several generations of, of chicken eggs or tissues, um, and it becomes attenuated enough that you can inject it into somebody or give it through the nose, and it won't make the person sick, uh, but it will grant immunity. And so this is the next leap. Um, he, he figures it out, and um, a, a child by the name of Joseph Meister there in Paris gets a bit bitten by a rabid dog. His mom uh, sees the dog and knows, recognizes it as being rabbit because you you see it when you see a rabbit dog, it, it's it's not it doesn't look too too healthy, and it is very aggressive and foaming at the mouth, and so she takes his child, uh, her child to the to the local hospital and says, you know, he got bit by a rabbit dog, he's gonna die, isn't he? And not only was he very weak from all the the bites, but you know they were like, yeah, he's he's probably been infected, you know, go home and hope for the best. But she had heard that there was this, this scientist in town uh, by the name of Louis Pasteur who had been doing some experiments. Because what Louis Pasteur had been doing was trying to give dogs that were already rabid the vaccine to see if that would kill them. But it didn't. Um, and this was widely published. You know, the, somehow the local media got a hold of it. And she had heard about it. And so she thought, you know what, it's, it's worth a shot. So she went to Louis Pasteur and begged them to do something for her child. And he said, well, he's at the very beginning of, uh, of the infection. You know, he just got bit. Let's, let's try something out. And so he takes some of the, the brain from that, that last rabbit, you know, the, the 30th or so generation, and gives the, the boy a little bit of that uh, brain material dissolved in some, some saline water and, and gives it to him um, <laughs> in a manner that's very interesting. So he doesn't inject it into the arm like we see now um, or any other muscle. He actually injects it into the abdomen because he wanted that virus, weak as it was, to multiply just a little bit and for the immune system to get a hold of it and not ravage it. And so he gave it to him in the, in the abdomen, in the abdominal cavity. Uh, and I'll tell you another little story about that uh, later on. But he does, he does that, and he then takes the, the 28th rabbit and the 27th rabbit and so on and so forth. He goes backward and gives continuingly large doses of the virus and less attenuated to Joseph over the next several weeks and Joseph survives. He doesn't develop rabies. He doesn't get rabies even from the, the continuing higher doses because that was Louis Pasteur's experiment was, well, let's see if I can give him how far I can take it before he actually gets sick. And Joseph Meister survived. Uh, he survived the, 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 the attack from the rabbit dog. And this is repeated again in other people who were bitten by rabbit dogs. And guess what? Uh, France decides to begin doing this for anybody bitten by by rabbit dogs and to also give the vaccine to dogs before they get rabies to prevent them from from getting rabies and you see a quick i mean in a matter of years drop in the number of cases of human rabies and animal rabies at least for dogs um uh, over the the rest of the 1800s and and it's it's this enormous success joseph meister worked at the pasteur institute um when he became an adult he was a, a, a caretaker. He, you know, he would do odd jobs around the Pasteur Institute. 
when the when the Nazis were invading Paris in the 1940s, um, he was he was quite old. Um, he was in his 50s or 60s, and he sent his family away because the Germans were were coming. And uh, he got word that his family was was ambushed and killed. And unfortunately, uh, Joseph Meister died by suicide. And uh, here it ended up happening that it wasn't his family; it was another family that got killed. Family came back to get him um, after the after the uh, occupation had started, and he was he was dead. He died in the 1940s. Um, but you know, uh, you, again, talking about people lost to history, right? You know, what did he see? What did he do in the Pasteur Institute? Uh, we don't know. But he was there until until then, and he was the, the first person to be saved by the rabies vaccine. Wow. How big a deal was rabies before vaccination of humans and uh, dogs? Pretty, pretty big. Yeah, pretty big. Because, you know, this is also the time when cities are expanding into into the forests in, in Europe. Um, and so uh, dog, dogs that are somewhat domesticated are coming into contact with wild animals and getting rabies. And so they would then come back into the city and attack people. Uh, and, and, and if you get rabies, you don't get it right away. You get bit and then a few days later you feel fine. And then all of a sudden you start feeling like you have a flu-like illness and then it turns into encephalopathy, uh, encephalitis, and you die. And it's, there's no cure for it. It's 100% fatal even today. Um, so now we see more rabies cases in places that are doing what Europe was doing then, that are expanding into, um, into wild spaces. And so you see that in, in developing nations in Africa and Asia. Um, you know, and, and then, again, we go back to the inequitable access to vaccines. Because they're developing nations, they don't have a, they don't have equal access to the vaccine like we do here. If I get bit by a dog here, even if the dog has been vaccinated against rabies, my physician will recommend I get the vaccine, and I'm covered with health insurance, or the or the local health department will will pay the cost of the vaccine. I can go get it at any medical medical center, any ER, any urgent care center can get me that vaccine, um, and and I'm I'm good. You know, um, other countries don't have that that, that benefit. And it was the same in Europe. You know, they were expanding into the into those places. They were getting cases of rabies, even even though Pasteur figured it out. And he again, just like Jenner, wrote it up, sent everybody the formula how to do this. And other places started picking up on it. Um, you know, it, it still was a while before it, it was, there was equal access to it. But once there was, and like I said, once once more and more people were able to get a hold of it, and especially once it was given to domesticated animals, um, because all mammals can get rabies, so it was given to 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 dogs, to cattle, etc. Uh, the cases drop precipitously. Cool. So I want to skip forward to modern times a little bit um, because I just got into my arm uh, the Pfizer vaccine, which I understand is new technology, an mRNA vaccine um, that was able to be produced much faster because it's a new technology. But I don't really understand what that means besides the fancy sounding letters. Do you, is that something you can illuminate for me? Yeah, so it's actually not as new as you would think. Um, it, the technology dates back to the 1990s. So, you know, talking about these leaps in vaccine technology, you have the next leap with, with, um, with Pasteur. And the next leap comes in, in the 1900s with serum uh, vaccines, so against diphtheria, tetanus, etc. And then the next leap is in the 1930s with the, the, the development of the electron scanning microscope. You can see viruses and identify them. You can also grow them in the lab because you learn how to look for them in tissues. And you have things like the flu vaccine, the polio vaccine. And then the subunit vaccines come after that in the 1960s and 70s where we, we scientists figure out that you don't have to give somebody the whole, the full-blown pathogen. You can give them a little piece of it. 
And then, um, and then genetic technology comes after that. And that's the next leap is that in, in, in saying, look, when my body wants to create a protein, uh, the nucleus of my cells creates a, a message uh, called messenger RNA that goes out to the cytoplasm. So the, the, the rest of the cell, not the center, not the nucleus of the cell, but the, the, the rest of the cell. And in these little structures called ribosomes, it tells the ribosome what kind of protein to put together and create. So for example, if I've eaten sugar, my pancreatic cells, the nucleus will create a, mes a message saying, hey, we feel that there's a lot of sugar out there. We need to bring it into the muscles. So please make some insulin. Ribosomes get the message to the messenger RNA, make the make the insulin, and then the cell releases the insulin, and then you you start storing uh, the glucose into your into your muscles. So by then, by the 1980s, 1990s, this is this is understood. This is well known. Uh, kids are learning learning it in high school. I certainly did. But somebody gets the bright idea of hey, if if I can do this, uh, if I can make my own mRNA in the lab for creating, for example. Uh, antidiuretic hormone, which is uh, uh, what keeps you from from getting rid of all your your water uh, at the same time, uh, antidiuretic. Um, can I cure something like diabetes insipidus, which is a form of it's a form it's a hormonal disease that you don't make antidiuretic hormone, and you basically have to keep drinking water all the time because you're just you're just peeing it out all the time. And so they try this out with, with rats in the 1990s, and they're like, yeah, yo, yeah, I just told those rats to make their own antidiuretic hormone with messenger RNA, and they did, and oh my God. Um, but there was one problem. Unlike rats, the higher, the higher you got in, in the animal kingdom, especially to monkeys and you know, apes like us, uh, you, you, the immune system would get that, that foreign mRNA and just ravage it and just destroy it. And so they were not able to do it. And in more advanced uh, organisms. Rats were fine, you know, little small animals were fine. But then in 2005, uh, scientists discovered that if you wrap that mRNA in a little lipid uh, envelope, lipid meaning fat, the immune system kind of ignores it. And it can just get to the cell that it needs to get to, and the cell takes it up, and the message is delivered, and the cell makes that protein. And so that was, that was a leap forward. And they used this technology to... Um, make vaccines against cancer. So if you, if you send a messenger RNA that would create a protein that looks like a cancer cell, then your immune system would get triggered and begin to create antibodies against cancer cells. And, and if you ever develop cancer, that they would be there and, and prevent that. Um, but there wasn't a lot of success because it was, a, it was very, 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 and I mean very expensive to make these uh, mRNA lipid nanoparticles. It was just very hard to do. It was in the lab. Um, but they kept they kept at it. They kept trying it. And so when the when coronavirus comes around, the scientists say, "Look, we have this technology. We've had it since the 1990s. After 2005, we know how to deliver it. We just don't have enough money to make as much as you need." Um, and the Trump administration put together what is now called Operation Warp Speed, which took a lot of our of our money uh, from taxes and gave it to pharmaceutical companies to try to develop any vaccine that they could as fast as they could. And these two companies, um, Pfizer and Moderna, um, decided that they were going to try with the mRNA vaccines because they had seen uh, how the the immune system was very robust in in larger mammals and, and apes, and so surely it would work in humans. And so, to instead of going one step at a time through the process of of the clinical trials, they started all three phases at the same time. So they started, they started, they knew that it was safe because I was already known from 2005. They didn't have to worry about that. 
but they started in a small number of people, a middle number of people, and a large number of people, just in case it worked in the first two, then we could always we they could always go to the third uh, number of people and just say yes, at thirty thousand people it, it works, and, and and look how well it works. Um, and in in full disclosure, my wife was a participant in the clinical trial for the Moderna vaccine. Uh, she was one of uh, a little over thirty thousand people who who got it. Uh, and she was given the actual vaccine. She was not given placebo. We found out later that she was in that, that arm. So um, that's the history of the mRNA vaccine in a, in a quick you know, capsule. But it, again, it was a matter of money. It was a matter of impetus and need. Uh, you know, if we have a very, very, very good MR, um, MMR vaccine against measles, mumps, and rubella, we have good vaccines against pertussis. We have reasonably good vaccines against, against influenza. There wasn't that much need to invest that much money into something. Coronavirus comes around, the funding gets gets into in there, and, and and that's what really pushed this mRNA technology, which is very exciting because now you don't have to grow the virus in the lab, right? You don't have to worry about your, your employees getting sick from handling these pathogens in the lab. All you need is a genetic sequence. The genetic sequence for coronavirus, for the novel coronavirus, was released by China in January of 2020. That's all they needed to make the uh, mRNA and then the mRNA vaccine. If, if another pathogen ever arises, and it will, um, all they need is to put it through a genetic sequencer and send that, that sequence out to, to companies that will make mRNA vaccines, and we can have a vaccine in, into production in a matter of weeks. Instead of waiting to be able to grow it in the lab, to be able to grow it in a tissue, to then be able to attenuate it, to then be able to um, break it up into subparticles, to get those subparticles into a, a vaccine, and then send out the vaccine. So you can see how, yes, it was fast, but it was based on technology from, from 25 years ago. So I know part of the, it's an amazing story, by the way. I love hearing about that, that science. It makes me feel good about these shots. But I know part of the historyofvaccines.org is, you know, give people good information, help them make their own decisions, and that there are these benefits to a lot of people getting vaccinated, the sort of idea of uh, herd immunity. And um, I want to share something as we go into this part of the conversation, a little bit personal and embarrassing, which is that I did not get <laughs> any vaccines until 2015, well into my 30s, <laughs> because <laughs> my parents were hippies and they didn't vaccinate any of their children, including me. And it, uh, when I was growing up, uh, there really weren't any consequences to that. Uh, you know, I guess there weren't that many of us. Um, no one, these diseases like measles or things, just no one got them. So I didn't never really had to um, revisit my parents' decision and make my own mind up until there were some, you know, outbreaks of measles in 2015 in a place I happened to need to go uh, for a work trip. And I just sort of, you know, went and found information, not on history of vaccines, but other places like it. Um, and decided that it was safe and effective and did it. Um, but I'm just curious if you have insights of like, what are, how do we get to these magic numbers where diseases just kind of fall away? And how do, when do we lose that sort of protection? Yeah, so you, you benefited from herd immunity, right? We, we also are moving now towards calling it community immunity. Um, so what happens when, when you vaccinate a large number of people is that the chances of a, of a disease uh, jumping from one person to the next and triggering an epidemic are, are lower. And after a certain number of, of people are vaccinated based on the infectiousness of the agent, then the chances of an epidemic drop to near zero. 
And so you still have random cases here and there, but you will not have epidemics. For something that is very infectious, like measles, that, that herd immunity level is 92, 93%. So a lot of people need to be vaccinated and mount an immune response um, to, to, to prevent epidemics. For something less infectious, uh, like influenza, it's a, little bit, it's a little bit lower, like in the 40s or 50s. COVID-19, uh, the novel coronavirus that causes COVID-19 is somewhere along, around 70 to 80%. So you were, you were hiding, as we, we, we say, hiding in the herd. And, and you got lucky, to be honest. Um, not, not a lot of people are lucky to be not vaccinated against childhood diseases and then, and then be uh, living in a place where there's a high vaccination rate that keeps you safe. Um, a lot of people uh, are not that lucky. We saw it with the major um, outbreaks of measles in 2019. Uh, there was a case of one of my colleagues uh, told me about a case of a woman, also uh, like you, parents were hippies, didn't were vaccine hesitant, uh, didn't get vaccinated against German measles rubella. She then goes on a mission trip to Africa, and rubella will, goes to a, a, a village there where she is working. And she catches she catches rubella. She thinks nothing of it because rubella usually you get it and you get sick for two or three days. It's like kind of like a mild flu. Uh, you get a little bit of a rash, but it goes away, um, and in in and you're fine afterward. She didn't think much much of it except that she was pregnant and she didn't know that she was pregnant. Uh, this was uh, a mission trip as part of a honeymoon, and um, when the local physician there found out. She was flown to a hospital in, in Europe and then flown back to the States. And she found that the fetus had been uh, affected by rubella. So here you have a disease that is not heard of in the United States because of the very high levels of MMR vaccination and the high effectiveness of that vaccination. But she traveled to a place that, that was not, where she was not protected by the herd anymore. And she contracted it and the, the fetus was born with what is called congenital rubella syndrome. Uh, this child was born into a nightmare because they had um, they had, con- had all these congenital deformities, uh, heart deformities, um, uh, cataracts over the eyes. There was going to be a developmental delay. There was going to be all these all these issues, and so um, unfortunately, the child didn't didn't make it past the first few months of life. But you 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 can see where you, if you are in the herd, you're protected. But at the moment you go out of the herd, and it, if it comes, it hits you and it hits you badly. Um, had she received the, the two doses of the MMR, once at age two, the other one before starting uh, grade school, the chances are super low that she would have gotten it even going outside of the herd. And so, um, you know, you see this, you see this, uh, these, this thinking of, of herd immunity, which at times it annoys me because people seem to think that it's this magical thing, uh, but it really does require more than just, uh, more than just taking the vaccine because vaccines are not 100% effective. And so it, it, if you va- even if you vaccinate 100% of the people, some of them are still not going to be protected. You need to get to that level to, to vaccinate. So while we're aiming right now for COVID-19 to vaccinate 70 to 80% of the, of the population of the United States, even if we do that because of the 95% effectiveness, we're still going to need to punch through that and probably get well into the 90s to reach a 70 to 80% herd immunity. And then there's a, the, the question of what is a herd, right? What is, what is my community? Because if I'm in a community that is well protected by vaccination, but I attend a school where all the children with me are not vaccinated, then I'm not in that herd anymore. I'm in a whole different herd. Um, and so, you know, those are the things that we need to think about, because if, as you probably have heard um, here in the U.S., there is a large segment of the population who tends to vote a certain way as well, uh, who are saying that under no circumstances will they get vaccinated. 
So now us epidemiologists having been through all of this, now we need to worry about them and reach out to them and try to get them vaccinated because they're going to be the ones that are going to have the what we call the epidemiological transition of a disease where it goes from from affecting one population, but then we protect that population. So it, it, the virus is going to try to find another population to affect and it's going to be them. Um, and so we, we're trying to reach out to them and get them vaccinated as well. So that's, uh, you know, that's the, 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 the pros and cons of, of herd immunity uh, that it, it does protect and it does keep people safe inside of it. But the cons is what is what is the herd and how you can jump in and out of your herd um, and sometimes not, not even knowing about it. Yeah, I feel very lucky that I uh, <laughs> made it uh, to the point where I got to make my own decisions and got vaccinated without getting sick, especially because I did travel abroad and stuff like that before then. Yeah, no, you want to you wanna talk personal stories. So remember what I was telling you about the rabies vaccine uh, given in the abdomen? So when I was uh, six years old, I was in a little league uh, baseball team and, and I had practiced uh, for it and I was ready for it. And the first day of the first game, I'm walking out of my house and this dog is in the, in the, uh, on the sidewalk and he's looking at me kind of funny and I reach out to pet it on its head because I love dogs and he mangles my hand, um, and, uh, and runs away. Uh, my dad then picks me up and, and takes me inside, washes down, washes the hand really well. Um, but then the neighbor comes running over and says, that dog is rat- rabid. Uh, and this isn't, this is in Mexico. This is right on the border with Texas there in, in, in Mexico. And um, he, my dad is like, are you sure? And they, they hunt the dog down. And they, indeed, it was, it was showing all the signs and symptoms of, of being rabid. And they, they took the dog to the pound and they, they said, yeah, you know, we, we have to put it down because it's, it's obviously, it obviously has rabies. So that brought a horror to my parents because, again, once you get it, it's, it's incurable. So they took me to a, a rabies center. And now at the time, Mexico had not uh, rid itself of, of rabies in dogs. It has now been certified as being free of dog rabies because of an intense vaccination effort um, and also vaccinating wild animals to prevent domesticated animals from coming into contact with them. So at the time in the 1980s, they, they took me to what is what was called an anti-rabies center where a physician uh, took a look and said, yeah, he needs, he needs the vaccine. We have it here. Um, don't worry about it. And, you know, he has a better than 90% chance of surviving this, which, which as a parent now, if, if, I, if they, they told me that my child had a better than 90% chance of surviving, I'd still be freaking out because that 10% is, is pretty, pretty high. Um, and so they gave me the vaccine and they gave it to me in the, right in the belly button. <laughs> and I still remember every second of it because it was so painful. Um, you know, a, a rather large bore needle into your belly button to punch, punch through into the abdomen. Um, you know, that's, you're going to remember that for a long time. And they did it to me uh, a day, day number zero when it happened. And they did it at day number one, day number three, day number seven, day number 14, and day number 21. So if you think back to what happened to Joseph Meister, they were doing the same thing. They were giving me a very attenuated uh, virus at the beginning and a very strong form of the virus at the end to try to get my immune system up and running so that when the virus that was in my hand now traveling up my nerves uh, towards my brain uh, would be halted along the way by the vaccine, by the um, antibodies that were being created. So um, I, I remember that. And uh, now working in the, in the medical field, um, when I was working in the, as a laboratory technologist, and my wife working as a PA. Now it's fun. <laughs> uh, and, well, I wouldn't say fun, but now it's much better. Now you get a, a dose of um, immune immune globulin, which is concentrated antibodies, right at the site where you got bitten, and you get a, a vaccine in the shoulder on day day zero, and then another one at day three, and then day seven, fourteen, and twenty one. 
uh, and all of them in the shoulder, none of them in the abdomen. They, they've refined the technique of that vaccine, at least here in the States. In other parts of the world, they still use the, the Pasteur way of doing it just because they, they want to be uh, a little bit more sure. But like I said, here, had that happened to me now here in the U.S., if it happens to my daughter, um, she would be able to get the vaccine at very low, low cost or no cost and almost anywhere uh, within, within a few minutes driving. Um, she would be able to get it, whereas whereas when it happened to me in Mexico, it, it, it took hours to get to the rabies center, um, and then and then um, uh, the vaccine was provided uh, uh, low cost, but it wasn't it wasn't free, and uh, you know it was it was costly uh, for for my parents, but it, it saved me. You know, I uh, the the dog was killed. Uh, a pathologist did look at the dog's brain and and declared it to have rabies and. Uh, my parents still have the records of all all this that happened. Um, very very uh, scary stuff, but yeah, uh, you know, you you have my story. I've I've collected the stories of polio uh, survivors and polio pioneers who got the first vaccine against polio. Um, I have the story of this this woman who traveled uh, out of out of the U.S. to Africa. So all these all these stories going all the way back to Onesimus, individual stories, and and we epidemiologists like to say that anecdotes do not make up data but they do you know once once you put enough to get put together enough evidence you have this and we present that in in history of vaccines for people to have that 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 human connection because we we learn more from looking at other people's uh, mistakes or other people's successes we identify with other people we are empathetic uh, people and and that that kind of brings brings that out to kind of make that decision. And unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, I, I have to say that that is also the technique that anti-vaccine groups and individuals use. Right. They tell you about the child who developed autism after their MMR vaccine. They tell you about the, the child who died of sudden infant death syndrome a few weeks after their childhood vaccines and so on and so forth, because they're trying to to use the, the same the same technique of hey, identify with this horrible thing that happened to take some sort of action or some sort of inaction. Um, and that's kind of the, the push and pull. The, the difference there is, is data, right? The, different, the difference there is evidence and that we know that those vaccines are not associated with either of those, um, causally associated anyways. They're temporally associated with, meaning um, you get the MMR vaccine, but then it's also the time around, it's around the same time that a child should start to speak or interact more with people. And a developmental delay like autism is diagnosed right around the same time. But if you go, if you look now at some of the, the more recent evidence, there's more evidence that autism can be detected um, very, very early before the MMR vaccine. Uh, and so the MMR vaccine has been has been thoroughly studied for 20 years now, 20 plus years um, on autism, and nothing has been found. Uh, there's simply just nothing there. But we still see all those those human stories and all those uh, personal stories to try to get people to be afraid and 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 make uh, their decision on vaccine based on on uh, anecdotal anecdotal uh, evidence without any kind of data. Yeah, I, I have to say from personal experience because some of my family members were still hesitant. Um, you know, I I did talk to them about you know knowing people in New York who got very sick of COVID in early days because that's where I was living at the time. And even young people dying who I knew, um, and um, you know, it made a big difference in their calculation, and they ended up thankfully all getting it. But I know that's um, not the case for everyone. Um, but you know, these diseases are really scary. And one of the things that I felt really going through, especially that timeline, um, the history of vaccines, was just how 
terrible life was before vaccines. Imagine, <laughs> you know, yeah. 30 to 50% of every single person in your town dying of just one thing, and there could be others sweeping through and being disfigured. I mean, it's absolute insanity. We need these things. Yeah, yeah. No, and, 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 you know, um, I, I tend to understand people who are hesitant about vaccines because just like in the early days, you know, how do I know that that, that needle is clean? How do I know that the, the lab did all that it needs to do to, to test people and make sure that it's safe? How do I know? How do I know? You know, and, and that is that is some of the doubts that people naturally will have. We are very bad. We humans are very bad at measuring risk. Um, we hear of a couple of airplanes going down. If you remember the story of the 737 MAX uh, airplanes, a couple of them crashed and all of a sudden we grounded the entire fleet. Right. Um, but we kind of ignored that. We kind of ignored that millions upon millions of flight hours take place and nothing happens. You know, this is one of the safest uh, moments in, in aviation history. Uh, or we hear about a, a plane having severe turbulence and all of a sudden we don't want to fly. We, we get a, a, fear of, a, a fear of flying because we're unable to measure risk. You see it with lottery, right? You, you have a better chance of getting struck by lightning a couple of times and winning the lottery. But then, but nevertheless, we go and spend so much money on it that it's really a tax on the poor. Uh, because we think we're going to hit it big and be be millionaires. Uh, so we're very bad at measuring risk. And in that, I understand vaccine hesitancy because uh, this comes with the inability to measure risk, the inability to understand the science, and the, the natural fear that we have of something being put into our body. So you combine all of those things and, yeah, you know, you, you have this, this vaccine hesitancy where I think the, the, the trouble comes from an ethical and, and, and moral point of view, to be honest, is somebody who should know better. Somebody who has a medical degree or a science degree, all of a sudden, because of monetary reasons, most of the time, because they want fame and fortune, they become anti-vaccine activists and they start spreading misinformation without any kind of any kind of um, uh, care that they're doing so. And that's that's where we get into the term anti-vaccine. Um, so I, I often refer to uh, vaccine hesitant people as the people who who don't know better and they understand where they're coming from. And then the anti-vaccine people who are the showmen the lawyers who want to want to win a, a legal argument, uh, the, the showmen who want to gain popularity and thus money and, and fame that way, and the the physicians and scientists who have completely just um, for some reason turned against everything that they were taught um, and decided to sell supplements and 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 things like that uh, by also peddling misinformation, you know, trying to sell people on. The things that would take, well, this will take the mercury out of your blood after getting a vaccine. Well, what about the millions of times more mercury that I get from the environment? Will, will I do anything from that, for that too? Um, and so on and so forth. So yeah, there's there's this, these two two groups. There's a, a third one, which is kind of a mix of the other ones. Uh, somebody who doesn't know any better, but then they get locked into the cult of, of wanting to be anti-vaccine and they, they uh, are off to the races with that. But um, we, at uh, the History of Vaccines, um, try to, you know, keep it on the level. We, we tried to not, not name any names. Uh, notice I didn't tell you which physician I was referring to or which showman. Uh, but we also are very understanding and we have the, the page for parents there. Uh, I'm always available by email uh, to, for people who have concerns uh, because we want to reach the vaccine hesitant. Uh, we want to we wanna, um, educate. And, and even if they choose to still not vaccinate, that's perfectly fine. They made the decision using the best information available. And that's that's really where we fit into it. So, um, Renee, you've been absolutely wonderful. You're one of those people I could talk to all day long because the hist you're so knowledgeable and the history of these vaccines is so fascinating. I mean, it's just 
one of those stories of human triumph over, you know, just abject suffering. And I loved reading about it and loved talking to you about it. Um, but we're over to the time I promised you already, and I, I, I'm going to have to let you go. But before I do, uh, I come from a marketing background, and I'd just love to give you some unsolicited advice. Is that all right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, own George Washington on this one. Put him on, like, posters saying, like, Washington wants you to get vaccinated. Tell that story of the Continental Army and how we won the revolution. He will actually hold you down over a table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> over, uh, you know, just early inoculations. Um, you know, like those Uncle Sam posters would have it be Washington. And just tell that story over and over again. It's such a visible, beloved brand. Uh, such an amazing piece of American history you can really tell. And I think, you know, at least with my parents, you know, and people in that community who are vaccine deniers, there's this impression that, you know, this stuff is very new and um, scary and not well understood when, in fact, the history goes back uh, so much further than uh, I think they realize. And I think that's an important part of the story. And uh, it could really be uh, a really cool um, campaign to help uh, reach people with that message. Yeah, funny you mentioned that. I'm working on something for Fourth of July because, like I said, some of the people that signed the the, uh, the Constitution are on uh, began the, the College of Physicians in Philadelphia. So I'm, I'm planning something for the Fourth of July uh, along those lines. That yes, uh, uh, there is strong evidence that vaccines actually led to the American uh, independence. And so, uh, you know, we'll tell we'll tell that story. Uh, we'll also tell the story of the college being funded. Um, founded by some of the people who who signed the, the Constitution, and then um, you know we also have the story of Thomas Thomas Jefferson. So um, <clears throat> uh, his predecessor uh, John Adams was it John Adams. Yes, <laughs> I'm thinking of the Hamilton musical to try yeah. to remember <laughs> remember my presidents. <laughs> um, so John Adams gets gets a, a letter from from um, from Europe saying, hey. Uh, this smallpox vaccine thing—it's—it's—it's it's, it's actually a thing. Edward Jenner, look, look at the evidence, and he—he he throws it away. He doesn't—he doesn't care. Um, uh, Thomas Jefferson gets the same—the same letter from the same ambassador, and he keeps it. And when he becomes president, he becomes a champion for the the smallpox vaccine. Uh, so we're gonna try to tell that that story again uh, all around the Fourth of July. Try to get very patriotic about it. And then the other thing that we're doing is we're expanding, we're expanding to other languages and other other um, countries, and so we're trying to tie in to the stories of the um, the the origin stories of those countries and the origin stories of vaccines as well to try to reach those audiences. Well, thank you again for all of your work bringing this amazing history to light. It is so fascinating, and if uh, you head to uh, historyofvaccines.org, you can read about it too. And of course, it's been so amazing to talk with you over this last hour. Absolutely. Anytime. If you ever want to want to hear any of the other thousands of stories about vaccination, you know where to find me. <laughs> I very well may take you up on that pretty soon. All right. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our episode today and learned something new. It's amazing how much of our human history is related to the fight against deadly diseases. It's a lot to noodle about. Well, until then, we'll see you next time.